mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the AIAC podcast. My name is William Shoki and you are listening to this, which is Africa's a country's weekly talk and interview show on global politics and culture from an African and left perspective. If you missed last week's episode, that was a fascinating conversation with Andy Lezulu, who is a South African political essayist and who also works as the Energy Democracy Officer at the Alternative Information Development Center, a progressive think tank based in Cape Town. We spoke about the energy crisis gripping South Africa, where homes and businesses experience up to 12 hours of blackouts each day. We discussed the national utility, which is causing all of this trouble, ESCOM, tried to understand how we got here, as well as what might be a way out that isn't just privatization and at the same time provides the country a path towards a decarbonized future. Listen to that episode wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever. But most importantly, subscribe and we have episodes out almost every week. So for this week, many of you I'm sure have been paying attention to what is happening in Israel. Last weekend, more than 500,000 people out on the streets protesting against the government. Why? In December, one of the most right-wing governments in Israeli history came to power. Led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who now serves as the Prime Minister for the sixth time, the coalition includes figures such as Minister of National Security Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is a settler and one-time supporter of the terrorist political party Kach. Ben-Gavir is also known to have hung a portrait of Baruch Goldstein in his living room. Goldstein, who was also a supporter of Kach, massacred 29 Palestinians at the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron in 1994. What's causing controversy is that this government has proposed a set of sweeping judicial reforms that, in the main, would drastically restrict the Supreme Court's ability to strike down laws passed by Parliament and which it deems unconstitutional. The move has prompted mass demonstrations across Israel's main urban centers, such as Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem, with many calling these reforms a threat to Israel's democracy. However, as Jewish-American commentator Peter Beinart wrote in the New York Times, the principle that Mr. Netanyahu's liberal Zionist critics say he threatens, that is, a Jewish and democratic state, is in reality a contradiction. This contradiction, of course, is expressed in the reality of apartheid, in which 5 million Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem are under direct Israeli control, but are denied basic rights and freedoms. And last year, many human rights organizations, including Beth Selem, set in Israel, Al-Haq in Palestine, as well as Human Rights Watch, came out saying that Israel indeed presides over an apartheid state. These mass demonstrations are happening amidst an escalation of violence. Just this year, Israeli forces have killed 65 Palestinians since it began, while 11 Israeli citizens have been killed. Earlier this month, settlers from the occupied West Bank, illegal settlements in the West Bank, number close to 500,000 now, carried out a violent pogrom in the village of Huara near Nablus, torching homes and businesses. Israeli's finance minister, Betzelas Motrich, subsequently made comments calling for the government to wipe out the village. So, on this episode, we are joined by Peter to discuss the political instability in Israel, the hardening of ethno-nationalism, and whether there are any ways out of the impasse. Could the vision of a secular democratic state for Palestinians and Jews 
between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea gained traction? Is his vision compatible with Zionism as an ideology? And what role does the United States play, which is Israel's biggest and most ardent international backer? Peter Beinart is editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, which is a great publication. He's also the professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark School of Journalism at City University of New York. And he's the author of The Beinart Notebook, a weekly newsletter, which I encourage all of you to subscribe to. So here is my conversation with Peter Beinart. Do you have a listen and enjoy. Peter Beinart, welcome to the Africa as a Country podcast. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. So I want to, before we have a conversation about what is currently happening in Palestine and Israel, I want to begin with what was a turning point moment for your political journey, which was when you shifted position from having previously seen the two-state solution, which consists of separate states for Jews and for Palestinians in the Middle East as being viable to embracing the idea of a secular democratic state with rights uh, and full equality for both national communities, which at the time marked, I think, quite a, quite a critical turning point um, because up until that point, you'd sort of been identified as being at the forefront of liberal political Zionist commentary um, in the American Jewish establishment. So I want to begin by asking you what shifted your orientation? What was the Damascene moment, so to speak? How did you arrive at that position? Um, and if this is maybe, I don't know, I hope this is not too unfair a question, but why did it take so long? Um, no, it's, it's, it's not unfair. Um... You know, I think that I, the way I always thought about the issue from, you know, when I was a teenager was, okay, um, I'm a Jew, and that means I have a special responsibilities, certain responsibilities to other Jews, because there's a kind of metaphor, which I kind of take seriously about the idea of Jews as a kind of extended family. It comes out of, the, you know, in the story of Genesis, the Jew, there's the story of this family, and then in, in the book of Exodus, it becomes a nation imagined as a family, B'nai Israel, the children of, of Israel. So I thought, well, I have to balance this obligation to the moral obligation I have to all people, and in this case, particularly Palestinians, because they deserve basic human rights. Um, and so I thought, well, partition of a Jewish state, a democratic Jewish state alongside a democratic Palestinian state would be the way to, to kind of solve this problem, that Jews would still have a country that protected us in a post-Holocaust world if there was, you know, uh, God forbid, another, you know, terrible outbreak of anti-Semitism, there would be a country that had to let Jews in. Um, and, but Palestinians would not be held as stateless non-citizens under military law. Um, the reason that started to erode over time, and yes, perhaps it should have eroded earlier, was, first of all, it was just obvious to me that the possibility of creating a sovereign, viable Palestinian state on the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza was becoming more and more of a fantasy as Israel kept entrenching its control over the West Bank uh, more and more and more. Um, so I was kind of out there making these arguments, but I just felt that I was making them with less and less conviction. And as a writer, I think 
you know, insincerity is the enemy of, of good writing. And I just felt like I, I wasn't going to be able to be uh, a good, to do good writing if I wasn't writing something, something that I really believed. Um, so I thought, well, this paradigm seems like it's, it's no longer uh, operative. What about the alternative, uh, alternative paradigm? And so I kind of just set for myself a project to basically read everything I could find about people who had tried to imagine what one equal state would look like. Most of that writing, although not all of it, was Palestinian. Um, and um, as I began to read more of it, I, I, I began to, it opened up my mind, not just kind of intellectually, but also kind of morally to this possibility and, and to help me understand, imagine a situation in which um, not just that Palestinians would gain liberation in one equal state, but that Jews, Israeli Jews could be safe um, and could uh, flourish. Um, and I think as I began to move deeper into this, into the set of conversations and readings, it became clearer to me that it wasn't just that partition was no longer practical, but that partition didn't answer some of the most fundamental moral questions. Um, it didn't provide a way for Palestinian refugees to return. Um, and that I had no, it was, there was no, no morally uh, coherent way for me to argue that Palestinians did not have the right to return to the places that they or their parents or grandparents were from, especially in a context where, where Jews were being able to return to, 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 to Israel, uh, you know, a place where many of them had not lived, you know, where Jews had not been, their families had not been for thousands of years. And secondly, that the partition, the vision of partition meant that the Palestinian citizens of Israel, 20% or so of, the, of that population, would be second-class citizens. They would not, not have equality, uh, even if there were a Palestinian state, the citizens, Palestinian citizens of Israel would be second-class citizens in a very, very profound way. And so I began to realize that the partition paradigm was not only impractical, it was actually not morally justifiable as well. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the way you develop the argument in favor of a democratic state of full equality is via a reinterpretation of Zionism saying it need not mean a Jewish state in the Middle East where democracy and citizenship is exclusive to Jews, but rather it means a Jewish home in the Middle East. I'm, I'm curious as to how you arrived at that position and the extent to which that strand of argument, um, which some people say is an argument for cultural Zionism and some early Zionists were proponents of these ideas, such as you know the philosopher Martin Buber, yes. whether that can be disentangled from Zionism as it exists in actuality right now, yes. which is this terribly destructive, occupying and repressive force. Um, and in trying to make that disentanglement, um, how is it possible to persuade um, that this is actually the, yes. the current of Zionism that, that we yes. should all embrace? Yes, that's, that's a great question. And, and look, I'm not, I, I thoroughly understand why um, uh, people would say, 
you know, Zionism is the state ideology of the state of Israel. So Zionism is what Israel does and what Israel has been doing uh, since 1948. I think that's a completely understandable position. I think the reason that I, and I'm not the only one, Omri Bohm, uh, you know, as you know, has also tried to recapture strains in uh, cultural Zionist thinking that ultimately led the people like Martin Buber and Judah Magnus and others to support uh, a binational state is that um, for me in particular, I see a lot of my audience as a Jewish audience. Um, uh, and I think a lot of the work that I see myself as wanting to do, just given the way that I'm situated, is trying to make a case to American Jews and, and other Jews um, the, in a language that I feel like Jews can embrace and understand um, uh, that um, Palestinian liberation, that, that full Palestinian equality is not a threat to us. Um, and um, so I think one of the, because Jews are so used to hearing, or in, to, think of it often, many Jews think of it as almost obvious that one equal state that was not a Jewish state would be a state in which Jews could not live safely or certainly could not flourish. I thought it was important to say that there were prominent people who called themselves Zionists who did think that was possible. Um, now, that's not to say those people didn't have their own blind spots. They, they, they certainly did. Um, but it's a way of saying embracing full Palestinian equality, including the right of return, does not mean saying that you have to believe that there is no special value for Jews living in Israel-Palestine. I do believe, even though I am a Jew who lives happily in the United States, I do believe that there is a special value, even if you go back to Jewish texts for certain religious commandments and other ways of Jews having a Hebrew-speaking society, community, that does a kind of cultural production. And that's kind of what I call Zionism or cultural Zionism that I think has been very valuable for the for Jews across the world, the recreation of Hebrew as a living language, for instance. And so that's why I look to that tradition to, because I'm not because there are other people on the left, Jews, and, for instance, who are basically diasporists. Their basic argument is there's no particular value it doesn't particularly matter whether there is a significant Jewish community in Palestine, Israel or not. That's not my view. I think it is really important that there be a thriving, flourishing Jewish community there. And so I wanted to try to find a way of articulating the fact that this is possible and, and that I, it is not just that I think it's possible, but that people in, in the kind of who called themselves Zionists in previous over the last hundred years have also thought it was possible. And so that's kind of why I made this argument. And I also find it very intriguing that the position of binationalism, which was largely, it was a marginal Jewish position um, in the middle of the 20th century, has now been kind of picked up by certain more recently Palestinian intellectuals. So Edward Said basically took this view near the end of his life. Uh, Bashir Bashir, uh, who's a Palestinian citizen of Israel, political theorist, talks about egalitarian binationalism. And it seems to me that there's a way in which the conversation between the binationalism that people like Buber and, and Magna supported and the binationalism that people like Said and Bashir Bashir are writing about, that that's a fruitful conversation. Mm. 
I think this provides a, a moment to transition to to talk about what's happening in Israel. Of course, we've seen weeks, months of protests against proposed judicial reforms. Uh, the turnout at last weekend's set of protests was um, close to half a million um, across different cities in Israel. And there's a very profound concern about the erosion of democracy in Israel and the threat to Israel's liberal democratic identity, which, as we know, is a contradiction in, in terms. Um, but I think what's what's interesting about all of this mobilization is the profound absence of Palestinians in the conversations. I mean, there were one or two sort of fleeting allusions to what happened in Huara, the pogroms, um, but mostly as a kind of rhetorical sleight of hand um, against police kind of um, tramping down on, on Israeli protesters. So, I mean, this is a question really about the, the sentiment and attitudes on the ground in Israel. What are the prospects for this kind of argument that you're making being received? Because increasingly it seems either either um in so-called liberal israeli um circles there is just a profound deep-seated indifference um to the plight of palestinians or the alternative is a hardening right-wing fascist uh backslide um which is the direction that this government has taken what are if what if any uh, might be the the entryway into popularizing the argument that you've been making? Um, I mean, I think your description of what's going on is is exactly right. There's a struggle amongst Israeli Jews about the degree to which Israel Israel will remain a uh, uh, will be will remain a country that's comfortable for secular Israeli Jews. Um, and um, uh, and uh, there's also a kind of a debate about um, how you manage the Palestinian question, um, where I think people on the, let's say, centrist position would say that basically you manage it by maintaining the Palestinian authority um, and, um, and, and, uh, and by having a kind of carrots and sticks approach as the Yair Lapid, Naftali Bennett government did where you let a few more Palestinians kind of come in to work in Israel in an attempt to kind of give them something to lose so they don't resist Israeli apartheid control. And the position of people like Netanyahu and Itamar Ben-Gavir and Betzlal Smotrich, which, uh, which would be happy to destroy the Palestinian Authority and uh, resort to brutal force, even up to the threat of mass expulsion. But it's not an argument about whether Jewish supremacy itself is legitimate. Everyone in that argument basically takes kind of as a given that um, this should be a Jewish supremacist state. It should be a state that... Um, uh, privileges the rights of Jews over Palestinians. Um, uh, right now, the prospects for moving beyond that towards a kind of political movement for equality um, seem pretty dim. I think if there was a place where it could start, it might be with the parties of Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, uh, Hadash and uh, Balad in particular, these are, these are really the only parties in Israel 
that I think you could really genuinely say genuinely believe in liberal democracy um, because they believe in the idea of a state for all its citizens, um, you know, with no privilege or hierarchy based on race, religion, or ethnicity. Um, and I think that the fact that the kind of most liberal uh, political Zionist party merits didn't even make it into the Knesset, which shows how weak it is, maybe creates the possibility that you could have an expand that that Balad and Hadash could expand to take in more Jewish Israelis, as some Jewish Israelis who consider themselves liberal political Zionists might move to a, a deeper recognition that actually they need to shift their paradigm and support the idea of full equality. The other thing, of course, is that you don't have a Palestinian leadership through the PLO, which has been the historic kind of legitimate voice of Palestinians, or through Hamas, which has kind of emerged as an alternative, which is really making this argument. You, you have in the West Bank, the, the PLO is a shadow of itself, the Palestinian Authority is an authoritarian subcontractor, which really <clears throat> has more in common with a South African Bantu stand than it does with the embryo of an independent state or a movement producing one. And then Hamas is speaking in an Islamist language, which is not um, likely to be the ideological basis for a vision for a kind of equality in a secular state. And so I think that also is is something which which needs to change so that there can be a Palestinian leadership. I mean, there are many Palestinian intellectuals and activists who are doing this, but I think their voice is weaker because there's not a political party and movement which is making that argument. And so I think that's another thing that would be necessary. Mm. And I mean, when it comes down to to the nitty gritties of of what a binational democratic state could look like by way of actual policy considerations. I mean, how do we, how do we even begin to envision one? Because I think as we've been discussing so far, just the sheer extent to which the idea of Jewish supremacy is hardwired into the prevailing Israeli consciousness it's hard to imagine that obviously we hope for some period of political mobilization and a movement for equality, which makes this argument and transforms minds and perspectives. But it's, it seems so bound up into um, the Israeli story, the Zionist story, um, that there must be a safe haven yes. um, that is protective of Jewish identity expression and and culture uh, and that inter interprets anything outside of of that idea as existentially threatening there is a, a a dimension to this that is very difficult to to undo um and the idea of sharing and distributing power rights and freedoms um in an equal state uh is very hard for a lot of people to to conceive um even when I've made made the arguments. So by way of description, what does that look like? Yes, I mean, you're right. It's a very, very powerful story, but I think it's also important to remember that um, stories can change, you know? Um, uh, you know, there was not always a Zionist consensus among Jews around the world, um, uh, not at all. And um, the irony of, of American Jews or Australian or South African or British 
Jews, demand saying that Jews can only be safe when there is an ethno-nationalist Jewish supremacist state is that those diaspora Jews are ourselves betting our own family safety on the idea of equality under the law, right? I mean, the reason that we feel safe in America is in large measure because um, we believe that America has certain constitutional protections. Of course, we benefit from them more than others, perhaps because most American Jews are considered white, but that's the bet that we've made. And if you look at Jewish immigration patterns, actually, you know, most Jews from the Soviet Union didn't want to go to Israel, Palestine. They wanted to go to America, right? Or, or um, and, and so this is, um, there is another Jewish story, another way of interpreting the history of anti-Semitism, um, which is, which doesn't lead to the answer that Jews need their own ethno-national supremacist state, but, but, but that in fact, Jews need to fight for equality under the law and liberal democracy everywhere, because that's good for us as well as for other people. And that was a large part of the motivation for Jewish participation in the civil rights movement in the United States. Jews thought, well, if black people fail in their desire for civil rights, that will mean that America is a kind of country where we as a small conspicuous religious minority won't fare very well. But if the civil rights movement succeeds, we will actually benefit as Jews have benefited massively from the success of that movement. So there's a different story that I think can be told. And um, the, um, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that yes, Jewish trauma um, maybe does incline some Jews to think in terms of existential threats. But as I don't need to tell you, um, it's also the case that any group of people, including white South Africans and white Southerners in the United States and Protestants in Northern Ireland, any group, I think, almost any group, that, that benefits from supremacy tends to see equality as an existential threat. Tends to, you even see this in the United States among many white Americans today. See, the idea of a genuinely multiracial liberal democracy in America is considered the equivalent of white genocide, right? And so this, Jews are not unique in this. In some ways we're quite, we're doing the same kind of move that so many other groups that benefit from oppression have done. And so it's really important to de-exceptionalize Israel-Palestine and look at the history of how those other groups were able, at least some people of them were able to unlearn that not because they woke up one day and just decided to, but because they came under pressure that made the status quo unsustainable. And that forced them to, to think and be open to hearing a different kind of vision. And I think that if that was true for whites, for Protestants in, in Northern Ireland, it's true for white South Africans to some degree, uh, it's true for white Southerners in the United States to some degree, then, I mean, the story never ends, obviously. I don't need to tell you in South Africa. It's not like the story for equality ends even after the day you have a free election, it, it continues, um, but, um, but that you can make progress and other groups have done so, and that we could as well. Mm. I'm glad you brought up uh, white South Africans and the South African story because you have South African roots. Right. Um, and I'm curious about those roots and the extent to which, if at all, that might've played a formative role in your political consciousness um, and being able to to draw those comparisons. Uh, you know, of course, it's now largely um, there's a widely building consensus that Israel is an apartheid state that, of course, derives from the South African experience. Um, and I'm wondering if that was and has been informative to you 
um, in coming to the conclusions that you have? Yes, it, it had a very big impact on me. And I think that one of the things that being the child of white South Africans gave me, which is perhaps different than a lot of other American Jews, is that for a lot of American Jews, when they think about their families, or their, the story of their families, they think about it largely as a story of, of being oppressed, of being victimized through anti-Semitism, and then kind of overcoming that. Um, but my, when I think about my family story, I, I do think about experience of anti-Semitism in Lithuania and in, in, in Egypt, for my grandmother and other places. But, but I also think about the fact that my family were white South Africans who benefited immensely from a system, a system of, of oppression. And I remember so vividly when I was younger, how people justified that, you know, and these were people I loved, you know, um, um, but people would justify it by saying all kinds of things that, you know, if you were in that little bubble had a, kind of seemed plausible, you know, well, you know, um, uh, look at what happened in the rest of Africa. You know, it, 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 you know, look at the, those countries have not have made a mess of it, or 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 you know, or Black South Africans are not ready for government, or all these things that now we, or or you know, or the Zulus and the causes will never get along together. All these kind of things that at the time, again, in that if you were just in a little white South African bubble, might have made sense to you. But now, with the perspective of history, we can see that they were racist and ignorant statements. Um, and uh, they were based on a deep ignorance. And, and, um, and I hear so many echoes of that kind of language when I hear Jews, um, not all Jews, of course, but, but many Jews uh, talk about Palestinians, you know? Um, and, and, you know, this kind of set of claims about what Palestinians are like or the way they behave or what would happen if they were able to gain some degree of political power. And it's, it's, it reminds me so much of that. And I feel that same sense of, um, I don't know, of confusion or, or, or sense of like trying to reconcile the fact that these are evil arguments with the fact that I know these are good people, or at least that I know in many aspects of their life, they are deeply good people. And in many aspects of their life, they're even brilliant people. I mean, one of the things that astonishes me so often about Jewish discourse about Israel-Palestine, Palestinians, is, is that people who are who, are, who have deep, brilliant insights and sophisticated ways of thinking about so many things, when they come to this topic, they just, they, they, they lose all of that intellectual curiosity. And, and you ask them like, well, how many books have you read by Palestinians? How much have you tried to actually understand uh, Palestinian history, Palestinian literature, Palestinian film, like Palestinian politics? And the answer is generally very, very little. And I think, but how does this make sense for someone who I know Deep, is deeply learned on these other subjects. So there is a way, I think, in which oppression and being the beneficiary of oppression kind of makes you stupid. Um, even if you're not stupid about lots of other things, it makes you stupid about that. And I see that same dynamic play itself out. And so it, it, it brings back for me often memories of, of you know, the time that I spent in apartheid South Africa and the, and the conversations I had during that time. Yeah, I think you're 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 capturing um, very profoundly that sort of breakdown in, in reason that I think um, emerges in these conversations. No matter you know what the oppressive context is, uh, whether it's Palestine, Israel, apartheid, South Africa, Morocco, Western Sahara, so many cases where where that that collapses. Um, and I think it's it's 
it also has to do with, on this particular issue, a profound and gigantic ideological machinery mm. that tries to suppress any dissident views. Um, yes. Yes. And that is particularly being abetted and supported um, by the United States um, and particularly um, the conservative um, conservatives in the United States of America. Um, could you could you talk us through how that how that came to be um, and how this sort of unholy marriage um, between uh, the pro-Israel part of the Jewish establishment and you know Republican conservatives who are some of the most flagrantly anti-Semitic people you will ever meet, um, but who are committed to uh, America's support uh, of Israel. And that commitment extends not only uh, to Republicans, but across the aisle to the Democrats as well. And Biden's foreign policy on Israel has only repeated um, that commitment. Um, how has that been so resilient in spite of what has felt like over the last couple of years, a changing um, discursive climate where more and more people are, are, are willing to, to call out Israeli apartheid. Yes. So I think the first thing to say is that um, there's a deep strand of Christian Zionism um, in the United States that goes back long before the founding of the state of Israel. And, and it was, of course, it was powerful in Britain as well. Um, and um, in which Christians imagine themselves as playing the role of restoring Jews to their rightful place uh, in sovereignty uh, in, in, uh, in, in what they would call the land of Israel um, or the Holy Land. And I, I think, and, and so this notion, um, and this notion is not separate necessarily from the fact that, you know, um, that America is a settler colony. Um, and I, again, I think this is partly prob perhaps why, you know, white South Africans, despite you know, the, 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 despite the complications of the fact that many Afrikaners were pro-Nazi, um, also came to strongly identify with Israel. Sasha Polakow-Saransky and other people have written about this, right? Because you, you, as people who are who would defend to identify things like freedom um, and civilization and progress within a settler colonial framework, it's not. It's it's it makes it easy to identify with Israel as a settler colonial project, and. Um, I think that so one of the things that I think you see, which is very strong in the, and this is particularly in the post 9-11 environment, uh, even before 9-11, but especially since 9-11, which is deeply Islamophobic, which sees America as kind of at war with the Muslim world. So then the idea is that kind of Israel is this outpost of the West, of kind of modernity, of, of Western civilization, democracy, um, in this kind of, you know, in this barbarian territory, which is filled with hostile people um, uh, who want to threaten the United States and don't share our values. And again, there I think there are echoes of the way that some white Americans saw white South Africa. Um, they talked about it more about it in terms of anti-communism, but this was a structure that I think also informed American support for apartheid South Africa. Um, so this endures. And then um, there, in, in, there is in the Democratic Party, um, where this discourse is not as powerful, this kind of, um, I think, uh, explicitly kind of racist discourse or religious discourse is not as powerful. 
what you have is a dynamic in which um, established in American Jewish institutions, because they've mobilized very effectively, have managed to create a disconnect between what ordinary democratic voters believe and what democratic politicians believe. And they can do that because even though most Democrats in the country now, a lot of them are quite sympathetic to Palestinian freedom, it's not a voting issue for them because it's not one of the top concerns. So as a politician, you don't pay that much of a price for being out of step on that issue because it's not the issue that people are thinking about when they go to, to vote. And also because we have basically eradicated any limits on campaign finance spending in the United States, that organizations like APAC, which have, uh, which have access to donors who can write million dollar checks, can put so much money into the political process that it creates in an enormously daunting environment for anyone who will even think about taking a full-throated pro-Palestinian position. And I think that's why, even though there has been a shift a kind of shift in American progressive culture, a shift in American media to some degree, it hasn't translated into politics, not only on the Republican side, but even on the Democratic side. Mm. And I mean, why, why the, the stubborn commitment to the two-state solution um, in spite of its very apparent unviability and particularly commitments to defense spending um, in protection of uh, the Israeli state and military industrial complex. Um, obviously, there are all of these geopolitical issues that you've canvassed, but even now uh, with the inauguration of the far-right government in Israel, um, that commitment is, 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 is as ardent as, as ever. And in the Democratic Party, which is the place where, if anywhere, this will have some room to maneuver and 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 have pressure from from the left um, that has amounted to to very little. And, and Biden um, has has you know Obama was by no means um, particularly left on this issue, but I think was um, in some particular instances uh, much more willing to challenge uh, Netanyahu, for instance. Uh, but. Biden has been uh, completely um, soft and and tepid. Um, how? Yeah. What? What? What do you think explains that? Well, I think Obama, because of his, per, per, Obama had the capacity. I think you know he had a, you know he had a very unusual life experience for an American president. First of all, he was a black American. Secondly, he lived in Indonesia. His he he his father was from Kenya. He had a understanding. Of how um, of how the America looked in the global South, which was very very unusual for American presidents. Joe Biden doesn't have that at all. I think he's much more kind of just a true believer in a kind of an American exceptionalist story that we promote for democracy and freedom around the world. And um, so I think Obama uh, Obama and Obama had also interacted with some Palestinians uh, like Rashid Khalidi, who was teaching at University of Chicago, and others, and and some left wing Jews. And and so I think he, Obama had an understanding of this. And I think he was willing to test the boundaries. J Street had just been created. So he thought perhaps maybe there might be some political protection for him if he took, if he tried to push this issue a little bit. He also thought it was also during the Arab Spring. And I think Obama thought at a certain point in 2011 that showing some at least modicum of support for Palestinians would be important for 
how these new Arab governments that look to be taking over would treat the United States. But Obama didn't get it very far. Obama didn't, you know, Obama didn't even have the support of the Democrats in Congress, and he basically lost his political struggle against Benjamin Netanyahu. And so Joe Biden, who was already not very inclined to do this, I don't think has the same kind of identification with Palestinians that Obama did, saw that saw what happened to Obama and said, there's no reason for me to political pick a political fight that I'm not likely to win. I want to focus on other things. I just need to kind of keep this thing quiet as much as I can. So I think that's why he's done that. And um, I, I think that the, the other thing which is important in this is that and again, I go back to, I mean, obviously the analogies are perilous, but I go back to thinking about South Africa in the 1980s. Um, and I think one of the things that happened in South Africa in the 1980s was the resistance on the ground um, by the, you know, the, the lead, by Kosatu, by the UDF, all these, which basically created a conflict on the ground, which put the issue on the front pages in the United States and around the world. It was that, that, that fed then the anti-apartheid movement, the sanctions movement, and also, of course, the ANC were able to lay out a vision of equality. You don't have that here. So you have a collaborationist Palestinian leadership, which is doing its best to keep things quiet, which actually then keeps the issue off of the front pages in the United States and means that the salience of the issue, even for people who would be sympathetic to Palestinian rights, it doesn't have the same salience. I think what we saw two years ago during the, the conflict that broke out in the spring of 2021 was that when the issue was put, when American TV networks did have to address the issue, you saw that the, the, the cultural changes that, that had been taking place started to express themselves. There were more Palestinians on TV than there had been before. And that started to put pressure on democratic politicians. And if that lasted for years, of course, the, the price for Palestinians would be horrifying to imagine the, what that price would be. But I think it would have the effect of making it harder for democratic politicians to sustain this line. Mm. Do you think another thing that could make it harder for democratic politicians to sustain this line is the progression of the right-wing government and Israeli settler colonial expansion and ethnic cleansing reaching a degree where it's just effectively untenable uh, to stand by its side, which is effectively where we are heading um, unless this trajectory is arrested. And so the question here is, where do you see the trajectory of Netanyahu's government, which is this motley bunch of, of fascists with folks like Itamar Ben-Gavir, who until recently had a, a portrait of Baruch Goldstein in his, in his living room, uh, Betzalel Smotrich, who uh, was fanning the flames of the Huara pogroms, um, a really nasty bunch of people who whose um, ideas of, of expelling the Palestinian people um, and dispossessing them further are are now much more explicit than they've ever been. And the starting point was quite a degree of, of explicitness. Um, so what, what direction um, might this head? Um, or is it likely, is this government likely to collapse um, under the pressure that is being placed on it from, from outside? Um, and the, the final question to ask here is, is, is what does that tell us about the changing dynamics of Israeli society? Uh, one way which 
I'm not sure if it's perhaps too oversimplistic of, of capturing that tension is as on the one hand, as you were saying earlier, um, secular Jews who want the country to remain secular and want to maintain the fiction of the country as a liberal democratic state um, and religious Mitzrahi Jews who are largely pivoting towards the right, but who rather than, you know, don't, aren't al-Mizrahi of, of Middle Eastern ancestry rather than European um, ancestry and like um, secular Ashkenazi Jews. That class tension is interesting to me because um, it's playing out in a, in a direction that I think many people wouldn't, wouldn't expect. Yes, there's a lot in what you said. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's important to say that, um, that there's nothing um, that, you know, that, it, that, that, that these expulsionist ideas, these supremacist and expulsionist ideas have always been there. Right. Um, and they were they were acted out in 1948 and then again in 1967, when there was another mass expulsion of Palestinians, many Palestinians expelled from the West Bank in 1967 by, you know, what we would call secular Ashkenazi political leaders and military leaders. So there's nothing that's in, in some ways part of the argument that the right and religious Zionists have been making in Israel in recent years is that we are the true ancestors of those secular uh, Zionists, because we're just trying to do what they did. And the secular and, and their secular grandchildren have kind of lost that nationalist fervor. Um, so um, the, uh, the, on, on the Mizrahi question, I, I, think it's I think part of the story has to do with the fact that when Mizrahi Jews came to Israel in large numbers in the late 40s and early 50s, they encountered a country that was uh, an Ashkenazi-dominated uh, Jewish elite that was deeply racist towards them, that saw them as Arabs. Um, you know, Ben-Gurion, one of the reasons that Ben-Gurion was so, one of the reasons Ben-Gurion thought the Holocaust was such a tragedy was that he has imagined populating this Jewish state with Europeans. When he realized that it was going to be significantly populated with Jews from Morocco and Yemen and Iraq and Egypt, he was heartbroken because he did not think these people were the human material that could create the kind of modern Western state that he wanted. And so in this cauldron in the 50s, what, Ashkenaz, what, what Mizrahi Jews had to do was to exorcise the Arabness inside of themselves in order to become accepted by Jewish society. And they were often the beneficiaries, not the only beneficiaries. I mean, but they gained some benefit from the expulsion of Palestinians, literally in the case that they were often housed, I mean, also Ashkenazi Jews, but housed on the territory from which Palestinians had been expelled. And I think this has continued on to this, this day in which it, you almost, Mizrahi Jews, they may not articulate it this way now, but they've almost had to be more Palestinian than the Ashkenazim in order to show that they were not Arabs. And even the language, you can see this, right? I mean, I'm, I constantly hear, it's bizarre to hear this. You know, my own, again, my own, my own grandmother grew up in Egypt. I constantly hear Jews say, the Arabs are like this. The Arabs are like that. They, you know, often in very kind of racist terms, the Arab world. And I'm thinking, like, what are these people talking about? Like 50% of the Jewish population come from Arab lands. They may not speak Arabic, but their 
grandparents spoke Arabic. Were they, are they not Arabs? When did they stop becoming Arabs? The fact that they don't speak Arabic, um, in fact, Orly Noy, who's a brilliant, um, she's the chair of the board of B'Tselem, herself born in Iran, um, she mentioned to me recently, which I thought was extraordinary, that actually young Mizrahi Jews are now less likely to speak Arabic than young Ashkenazi Jews, which just shows how complete that expulsion has been. But what you tend to hear in Zionist discourse is, well, they know what the Arabs are like, and that's why they don't want to live in an Arab-dominated country, right? Um, so that's the kind of discourse that you tend to hear. But I actually think a much more compelling interpretation, and Rachel Shabi writes about this in her book, We Look Like the Enemy and others, is really that it was that Mizrahi Jews had to prove their Jewishness by rejecting their Arabness. Mm, mm, mm. That's fascinating. I mean, again, coming here, it's, it's, it, it always takes us back to, to the question of, of, of what is to be done and, you know, whether these deeply entrenched identity questions can be sort of on a, on a, um, confronted on a, on a mutual journey of, of reconciliation and a, and a political movement for, for, for equality and for decolonization and, and all the rest of it. Um, what is, is there, is there any, are there any signs um, that, you know, especially in, you know, in, in, in Israel uh, proper, um, you know, in with its Palestinian community, um, has that shaped um, Israeli society's thinking on the Palestinian question at all? Obviously, they have second-class citizenship status, but um, in the wake of shifting public opinion, I mean, we've kind of already answered this question just by referencing the profound absence of of Palestinians from uh, the recent spate of protests. Um, they're not being talked about. They're not there. Um, but I'm wondering if, if, if sort of demographic patterns and and just sort of the 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 facts you can't avoid about living on the same piece of land um, will eventually just create a a hard wall of of reality that can only be broken through by imagining alternatives. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there are. I mean, I think what you write, see in Smotrich's writing um, um, is that he believes that, you know, yet there was a long time where you see this with people like Yair Lapid, that they argued that the situation needed to be managed. And Smotrich, in the, 2000, the essay he wrote in 2017, which I think is important, is he argues, no, the situation cannot be managed. It needs a solution. Um, but the solution that he's offering is not the solution of equality. Basically, the solution he's offering is either Palestinians accept um, their inferior status or we move to expel them. And, you know, in my experience, Jews, Israeli or diaspora Jews tend to think that's inconceivable. But Palestinians do not think that's inconceivable. Not at all do they think it's inconceivable. Um, and so I think that one of the things that frightens me is that when Jews say it's inconceivable, what they're actually saying is 
we're not going to resist it. We're not actually going to fight against it, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, because saying it's inconceivable means you don't actually have to take it on board as a reality that you need to struggle against. And when I look, it's interesting, there was a statement by the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, this umbrella group of American Jews, recently about the judicial reform. And they started it by saying, our support for the state of Israel is unconditional and eternal. It's strangely kind of almost theological language. Well, if it's unconditional and eternal, Betzalus Smotrich has nothing to worry about, right? It, you could expel them, right? Um, and so I don't think there's anything inevitable about it. I think the question is, as Israel moves towards further down the path of, of fascism and uh, entrenching apartheid and greater brutality, and even up to and including mass expulsion, do we can people create the political movements and the critical power to be able to resist that? And um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, what I, I I think there are some signs in the United States uh, and perhaps in other countries that we could be starting to build that. What I think we need is there is a Palestinian solidarity movement. That Palestinian solidarity movement is the core of this movement for equality and this resistance. But I think, and again, maybe this is me as a Jew speaking always with my minds focused on, on my own community. I think it needs to be expanded, not sacrificing the core principles, which are absolute equality and freedom and even decolonization. Um, but it needs to be expanded in such that I think it, it reaches out to those liberal Zionists who can be who can rethink liberal Zionism and recognize that a liberal a Jewish democratic state is not possible. And again, again, the analogies are facile, but I, I often think about the way that the ANC and figures in the ANC were able to combine a militant demand for full equality. You know, that, that Mandela was offered all kinds of things in order to be let out of jail, which would be short of that. You know, they said, just, just reject armed resistance and we'll let you out of jail. He was militant on that point. He said, I will not reject armed resistance until, you know, the day we have a day for free election. But he combined that with this astonishing, almost superhuman willingness to reach out to Afrikaners and speak to them in their own language. And I think that could broaden this movement and perhaps help to create the strength necessary for this fight about what the alternative is. Because I don't think the situation we have now is stable. I do think it's likely to tip one way or the other. Peter, I think that's the perfect note to end it. Thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thank you. A reminder who I've been talking to, I've been talking to Peter Beinart, who is editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. He's also the professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark School of Journalism at the City University of New York. And he is the author of The Beinart Notebook, which is a fantastic weekly newsletter that is available on Substack. Do check it out. And to you, our audience, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back every week with new episodes analyzing politics and culture from an African and progressive perspective. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and most importantly, head over to africasacountry.com for new writing. Thank you very much. <laughs>